The strange but true story featured on this podcast contains details some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Chayaz Samuel and things are about to get weird. Welcome friends, thank you for being here today for episode 48 of the podcast. Right before I jump into today's story, I wanted to quickly say a huge thank you to everyone who has shared their Spotify wrapped graphics, showing that things are about to get weird has been one of their top podcasts of 2023. It means the world to me if someone listens to just one episode of the show, so I was absolutely blown away to find out that this podcast has been in the top three or top two for thousands and thousands of you and the number one podcast for almost 500 people, which I can't even believe. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for all of your support this year. I am so incredibly grateful. I have big plans for the podcast for 2024. There are some exciting things happening behind the scenes too. So thank you and here's to the next 12 months and beyond of keeping it weird, but the good kind of weird. Okay, on to the topic of today's strange but true story. This episode is going to be all about the bizarre and unsolved Hinterkaifeck murders, which took place in Germany back in 1922. As I'm sure you've guessed, this episode is going to be more along the true crime and unexplained mystery lines, but there's also a paranormal element to it too. It's also quite gruesome in parts and there will be mentions of the deaths of two children, so please do be warned. But as always, I'll try my best to not dwell on the gory details any longer than necessary. This was a listener suggestion sent in by the wonderful Casey, and as soon as I received Casey's email about the story, I went straight down the rabbit hole. It is very odd indeed. I'm going to do my best with all of the pronunciations, but do bear with me. All that said, let's get started. On the 4th of April 1922, on a small farm in Bavaria, around 43 miles north of Munich, a man named Lorenz Schlittenbauer tentatively stepped foot onto the property, hoping to speak to the family who lived there. And that family was the Grubers. 63-year-old Andreas and his 72-year-old wife, Kazelia, resided on the Hinterkaifeck farmstead with their adult daughter, Victoria, and her young children, Kazelia and Joseph. Their maid, Maria Baumgartner, was also expected to be present, although she was newly employed by the family and wasn't known to Lorenz. The reason for Lorenz's visit was odd. Although he was neighbours with the Grubers, this call wasn't to talk farm business or ask for a quick favour. For several days, no one from the family had been seen around the local town, and Victoria's daughter had failed to turn up to school. Letters addressed to the Grubers had begun to stack up in the local post office, as no one had been to collect them, and people had begun to wonder whether everything was okay up at the farm. Concerned for their well-being, Lorenz had taken it upon himself to investigate, and headed to their home around 3.30pm that afternoon, along with two other men. What they would discover shortly after arriving at the property would stick with them for the rest of their lives. Now, the Gruber's farm had a somewhat eerie feel to it at the best of times, and we'll get way more into that later. But on this day, there was a distinctly strange feeling about the place, and as the men approached the barn, something felt very wrong indeed. 
Pushing past their apprehensions, Lorenz and his friends opened up the barn doors, and they were met with a truly gruesome sight. Amongst the hay lay the bodies of four people, Andreas and Cazelia, their daughter Victoria, and their granddaughter, who had been lovingly named after her grandmother. Horrified, naturally, but also curious to find out where the two remaining inhabitants of the property were, the men ventured inside the house. Tragically, it was here that they then found the bodies of Maria Baumgartner and two-year-old Joseph. It's just terrible, it doesn't even bear thinking about. It was abundantly clear that all six of these poor souls had been murdered, and brutally so. Their injuries were extensive, and all appeared to have been inflicted with a mattock, which is similar to a large pickaxe. I'm not going to describe their injuries in detail, I'll just say that it was clear that the intention had been to fatally wound them all, as many of the blows had been aimed at their heads and faces. The scene must have been unspeakable awful to witness, and to say it was unexpected was an understatement. The Grubers had been pretty private, mostly keeping themselves to themselves, and with the level of violence inflicted, it all felt so personal. Lorenz immediately reported what they had found to the authorities, and a full investigation into what had taken place at the farm was launched. From the minute the police began to look into the murders, strange details began to emerge, and it seemed that with every new piece of information that came to light, a different bizarre theory would be thrown up too. I almost don't know where to begin, there's really no logical starting point because it's all so odd. But let's go with one of the earliest suggestions. The idea that the incident had been a robbery gone very, very wrong. Because the crimes had taken place on the Gruber's property, Police theorised that it could have started out as an attempt to steal money or possessions from the farm, and I suppose that's an understandable line of inquiry, but this hypothesis was soon ruled out. For one, police discovered some sizeable amounts of money in the house that had not been taken, which was fairly compelling all on its own. But it got so much weirder. There was a huge amount of evidence to suggest that whoever had murdered the Grubers and Maria had remained on the property for several days afterwards. It's believed that all six victims were killed on the 31st of March, and in the time that passed between that date and their discovery on the 4th of April, the farmstead appears to still have been operational. All of the animals had been fed, the family's food had been eaten, and smoke had been spotted coming from their chimney in those intervening days too. It was clear that whoever had committed the murders had remained at the Hinterkaifeck farm for some time, whilst the bodies of their victims lay around them. It's so chilling. After all six autopsies were performed, it was discovered that all but one of the group had died instantly from their wounds. This is horrifying, but the physician who carried out the autopsies found that the younger Cazelia, Victoria's daughter, had survived for several hours after her attack, but ultimately succumbed either to her injuries or pure shock. She was just seven years old. It seemed that the victims may have been enticed into the barn one by one where they were killed, with Joseph and Maria being attacked separately. 
although some of the circumstances around what had happened were starting to be revealed. The question of who had done it was still very much unclear, and before long, the authorities began to take a serious look at one of the key people involved in uncovering the crime scene, the Gruber's neighbour, Lorenz Schlittenbauer. To understand why, we need to dive a little deeper into the life of one of the victims, 35-year-old Victoria. Now, Victoria was a widow. Her husband had actually passed away several years earlier whilst fighting in the First World War. Although her husband had been the father of her seven-year-old daughter, the identity of two-year-old Joseph's dad was unknown. However, it was widely suspected that Victoria was or had been in a relationship with none other than Lorenz, and that he was Joseph's father. It does feel that a lot of the information available around this situation is quite gossipy and hard to substantiate, so perhaps take it with a pinch of salt. But there were rumours that Victoria's dad, Andreas, was not the biggest fan of their relationship, and for whatever reason, stopped them from getting married when Victoria fell pregnant. It seems that this put an end to their relationship, and Lorenz went on to marry someone else. But if the hearsay is to be believed, this new chapter of his life was not without tragedy. After getting married, Lorenz's wife found out that she was pregnant, but sadly their baby would not survive for long after birth. It's been suggested that the trauma of this terrible loss, paired with the resentment he felt towards the Gruber family, caused him to snap and commit the brutal acts they were subjected to. This was bolstered by the fact police thought Lorenz acted strangely after he discovered their bodies, appearing both too casual about their deaths and too familiar with the scene. But ultimately, there was really just no solid evidence to show that Lorenz had been at the Hinterkaifeck farm on the 31st of March, let alone during all of those days afterwards, and he was officially ruled out as a suspect. At this point, I urge you to prepare yourselves as we are about to take a sharp turn into the plain weird. And that's before we even get into the potential paranormal aspects of this case. So let's explore a few more of the theories that were investigated after Lorenz was cleared of any involvement. The first, and I am not making this up, is that it was in fact Victoria's first husband, a man named Carl Gabriel, that had been responsible for the murders. Yes, the same husband who had been killed in action in World War I. Perhaps leaning in way too hard on the always look at the husband rule of thumb when it comes to crimes like these, the authorities questioned whether Carl had somehow faked his own death back in 1914, laid low for, what, almost eight years, and then returned to Germany to kill his wife, her whole family, and their maid? It's absolutely wild. Although this was an avenue they seriously considered for a period of time, it was soon disproven, as it was confirmed that Carl really had died whilst fighting in France at the very start of the war. There were literally fellow soldiers who had seen his lifeless body. There was a strange revival of this theory after the end of the Second World War, though, when some released German prisoners claimed they'd encountered a Soviet officer who spoke German and told them he was the Hinterkaifeck murderer. But their accounts of this were shown to be largely unreliable, and once again, it was just impossible to prove. Then the theory started to get very dark indeed. A warning that I am going to be mentioning the topic of incest for the next minute or so, so do feel free to skip ahead if you prefer. 
within the local community, it was known that Andreas Gruber and his daughter Victoria had previously been convicted of having an incestuous relationship. The details of this are sketchy, although from what I can find, most sources suggest that it was very much Andreas who was the instigator of this. Some accounts claim he was a violent and controlling man who thought nothing of causing great harm to his family members. The theory goes on to imply that two-year-old Joseph could have been fathered by Andreas. It's so grim, I'm sorry to even have to bring it up. What this led to was a suspicion that perhaps Andreas or indeed Victoria had wanted to suppress this truth so badly that they had committed the murders before turning the weapon on themselves. But once again, this idea was soon discounted as it was incredibly clear that none of the victims' wounds could possibly have been self-inflicted. Their killer had definitely been a person or people outside of those who resided on the farm. Now, there are records of several other people who have been looked at with suspicion over the years, but it's proven difficult to cross-check the information available about them. That's mostly because of one, the language barrier, as most resources on this topic are in German, and two, because the website which used to house most of the articles about the case, hinterkaifeck.net, is no longer available. However, a lot of those articles are still referenced on Wikipedia, so this is one of those rare instances where I'll have to refer to it to help tell the story. Last resort, but needs must. So let's have a look at a couple of the other potential suspects. Firstly, in 1971, a woman known only as Therese spoke out about an incident she remembered from her childhood that had happened when she was around the age of 12. She recalled how her mother had received a visit from a friend who had two adult sons, Carl and Andreas. No relation to the other Carl and the other Andreas in this story, by the way. During this visit, Therese claimed that she'd overheard this friend of her mother's confessing that her sons were the Hinterkaifeck murderers, and she referenced that during the course of carrying out the crimes, Andreas had lost his penknife. Weirdly enough, when the farm was demolished the very next year after the murders in 1923, there was indeed a penknife found that couldn't be definitively linked to any of the victims as being their possession. I guess what they mean by that is perhaps it wasn't engraved with any of their initials or something similar. As a side note, it was also at this time that a mattock was discovered in the attic, which could well have been the murder weapon. Although this report by Therese was looked into, perhaps not unsurprisingly, nothing came of it. Not only had a huge amount of time passed between the murders and this revelation in the early 70s, but even if it had been presented earlier, it's unlikely it would have made a difference. The police investigation was pretty shoddy from the outset. It's alleged that the scene wasn't dusted for fingerprints, and both the barn and the house were cleared to be knocked down surprisingly soon after the killings took place, especially considering that no one had been charged, 
let alone convicted. Then we get to the allegations made by one of the Gruber's former maids, and this paves the way for our transition into a whole different phase of this story. Crescenz Riga works for the family for just under a year, leaving the farm in September of 1921. She was outspoken about two of her own hypotheses about who had killed her former employers, and the poor woman who had been her successor. It's thought that Crescenz accused not one, but two different pairs of brothers of the crimes. Firstly, Anton and Karl Bischler, who she said knew the farm well and would have had no trouble running it during those days between the murders and the discovery of the bodies. She also had her suspicions about the Thaler brothers, two local men who were known to have committed several small-scale burglaries in the local area. Crescenz thought their motive could have been money, but if you remember, no money was actually stolen from the house in the end. Even though the murderer or murderers spent a considerable amount of time there after the killings, so they would have had plenty of opportunities to find the cash. And so this pattern of having little to no evidence and of details not adding up or making sense continued. Although many, many people were interviewed during the course of the police investigations, all of them ended up being released with no further action taken. The police case file was officially closed in 1955, and although some further formal inquiries did take place, with the last being in the mid-80s, to this day, no one has ever been charged with the six Hinterkaifeck murders. It's gone down in history as one of the most frustrating unsolved crimes in Bavaria, but the legal and criminal sides of this case are not the only things that make it truly mysterious. Because if we look back to the time that Crescenz quit, just over six months before the family and Maria were slain, we start to get a much wider and far spookier view of the atmosphere at Hinterkaifeck during the lead-up to the killings. As it turns out, the reason Crescenz had resigned from her position as the Gruber's maid was because she'd become increasingly convinced that the property was haunted. The experiences she'd had whilst working on the farm had become so disturbing to her that she felt she had no other choice, even though Andreas Gruber would repeatedly tell her she was being far too superstitious and dismissed her fears entirely. Crescenz told him that she would often hear footsteps around the house, coming particularly from the attic when no one else was around. She also claimed that she felt this unnerving sensation as though she was being watched, and it eventually became so intense that she could no longer remain at the house. After the murders, she told the police about her strong beliefs that the farm was haunted, which must have caused a raised eyebrow or two amongst the investigators for more reasons than one. Get this. In the days and weeks leading up to that fateful night of the 31st of March, Andreas actually told neighbours about some other strange occurrences that had happened at his home. A newspaper, usually only sold in Munich, was found on the property, and no one in his family had purchased it. In fact, no one in the neighbourhood subscribed to it, so it couldn't have been delivered to Hinterkaifeck by accident. 
he also found fresh footprints left in the snow, leading from a nearby forest into one of their farm buildings. But no footprints leading away from their land were anywhere to be seen. By this point, I'm sure he was on high alert, and when the family started to hear those same unidentified footsteps coming from the attic, Andreas decided to investigate. He did a full search of the property and found no one. Bizarre. I'm going to get onto my own thoughts about all of this in a moment, but just in case this entire story hadn't already been weird enough, there are a couple more strange details that just added to my overall mystification when researching it. Firstly, the day of the murders, the 31st of March, was Maria Baumgartner's very first day of working for the family. Day one of her employment. Perhaps it's just a terrible and tragic coincidence, but it's such an odd fact in this case. I feel uneasy about it, even though I'm not quite sure how it would correlate with what happened, especially as things had been feeling a bit odd at the house for several months. And secondly, apologies as this is a bit gruesome, but something was done to the six victims' bodies during their autopsies, which resulted in yet another unexplained element in this situation. It was decided that the heads of the victims should be removed from their bodies and sent off to Munich for specialist analysis, in the hopes that these new tests could help to uncover some vital clues. Sadly, those clues never seemed to materialise, and to make matters worse, or at least even more undignified for the Grubers and Maria, not only were they all buried without their heads, but their skulls actually ended up going missing. This was thought to have happened sometime around the Second World War, and is yet another reason why many have long believed that this case will never truly be solved. And this isn't even all of it. There were some further strange happenings around the property near the time of the killings. Several unidentified figures were seen close to the Gruber's farm between the 31st of March and the 4th of April, and pungent smells were reported to be coming from the farm, as though something unpleasant was being burnt. Really, the more you read about this case, the more keeps on coming up. It's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle where half the pieces are from a totally different set and you can't make it all fit. It doesn't surprise me at all that this case is still often discussed and theorised about to this day. So at the end of all of this, what do I think happened at Hinterkaifeck on that awful night? If I was being completely rational and almost mechanical about it, I'd say that the crimes were most likely perpetrated by someone or perhaps a couple of people who were passing through the area with nefarious intentions. Perhaps they had intended to commit a robbery at the house, hadn't banked on there being six people living there, and had taken each of their lives in a state of panic then remained on the property until they figured out their next move, not wanting to head back out into the cold, snowy weather until they had a plan. Even as I'm saying it, it doesn't feel right though. For starters, if this was true, then why was no money taken? If they were on foot, money would have been far easier to steal than possessions. And besides, there are no reports of any items being taken either. Secondly, although this theory could explain the footprints Andreas found, why were there no new sets discovered on the 4th of April leading away from the farmstead after they'd made their escape? 
Thirdly, most sources seem to suggest that the killer or killers had been hiding in the attic and that's what the family could hear before they were attacked. But wouldn't that have meant they'd been up there for, what, six months? Because Crescens had been hearing those noises far before the murders took place. So it just doesn't add up. Plus, Andreas had searched the house extensively and didn't find anyone. But then, I also can't say that I buy the paranormal explanation either on this occasion. I mean, could the house have been haunted? I believe so, yes. Maybe Crescens was onto something there. Could that have resulted in the brutal murders of all six inhabitants? Absolutely not, in my opinion. I think this was an act committed by a person or people in the land of the living. But why they did it, I have no idea. There could be endless, long-forgotten aspects to this story that we'll simply never know about. Lesser-known enemies the family may have had, for example. One final head-scratching detail to end on is this. In 2007, Furstenfeldbruck Police Academy decided to look into the cold case once more, as a training exercise. And although they had so little solid evidence to go on, they did come up with a theory that they all agreed was a pretty likely explanation. But in the true style of this whole case, it was decided that their conclusions would be kept private, out of respect for the living descendants of the long-deceased suspect. This really does feel like a mystery that's destined to remain forever unsolved. Well, I am sure that you will all have some strong thoughts on this one, and I would be absolutely fascinated to hear them. Which of the endless number of possible explanations do you think is most plausible? Do you think the outcome could have been different if the police had conducted a more thorough initial investigation? I'll be letting you know about all of the different ways that you can join in the conversation and let me know what you make of this case. But first, it's time for the little outro feature I affectionately call Weird Media. It's no secret that I have a real fascination with scams and scammers, as well as cults and cult leaders in particular. Very few things infuriate me as much as people who exploit the vulnerabilities of others, which is what most cult leaders rely on in order to scam and manipulate people into joining whatever group they've formed. So, when I came across the new three-part documentary on Netflix called Escaping Twin Flames and realised it was all to do with an alleged cult, I had to start watching it immediately. Apparently, there's also another documentary about the same situation on Amazon Prime. That one's called Desperately Seeking Soulmate, Escaping Twin Flames Universe. But I haven't seen that one yet, so I'll focus on the Netflix one today. I'd heard about the concept of twin flames before. It's similar to the idea of soulmates, that there's this perfect person out there for everyone. Basically, that they have this divine connection and it's uncontrollable. Your twin flame is your twin flame and that's that. And in the documentary, we discover that this concept was jumped on by a married couple named Jeff and Chalia Iron, who created this online organisation around 2017 called Twin Flames Universe. Universe, saying that their mission was to essentially teach people how to find their twin flame, and once they did, how to make the most of their connection. It sounds harmless enough in theory, but the reality is shockingly different. 
In the episodes, there are interviews with former members of the group who detail their experiences of getting sucked into the cult and how it has impacted them. It was genuinely heartbreaking to hear these people talk about what they went through, but that's not all. There are also interviews with family members of some of those still inside the organisation and they are very tough to watch. I'm being a little vague deliberately because one, I don't want to spoil the documentary for anyone, but two, because this is still an active cult alleged cult, sorry. As I'm speaking now in December of 2023, the leaders haven't been convicted of any crime, so I have to be careful what I say. But if you're intrigued, I would absolutely recommend watching the Netflix show. And I'm sure that Amazon Prime one is very good too, because the subject matter is unbelievable. If anyone has seen both documentaries, I'd love to hear which one you thought told the story best. So please feel free to pop me a message and let me know. Okay, time for my usual shout outs to the sources which helped me research today's story. There was a brilliant article on mental floss. That was by the writer Sonia Vatomsky and was last updated in July of 2023. We had a piece about the case on allthatsinteresting.com. That was by Katie Serena and was published in August of 2023. There was a feature on historicmysteries.com by Alan McNairn. That was from March of 2020. That date always gives me the shivers to say. Next was a grunge article by Benito Sereno from February 2021. And finally, there was some of the information that had previously been collected on hinterkaifek.net before it was closed, but can still be found on Wikipedia. If you would like to get in touch and share your thoughts on this story, there are loads of ways to do so. If you're listening on Spotify, you might have clocked that Q&A function. That's a great way to let me know what you think of each different episode. But more generally, over on Instagram, our handle is at thingsgetweirdpodcast. And on Facebook, there's both the private discussion group and the main podcast page as well. If you search for things are about to get weird, they'll both pop up. Our Twitter or X can be found at about to get weird, and our email address is thingsgetweirdpodcast at gmail.com. I've decided that going forward, instead of dedicated specials like for Christmas, etc., I'm going to dedicate the nearest full episode and or weird fix to that general topic. As part of the weird fix in particular, I can add in a couple of strange but true listener stories. So if you have a Christmas related one you would like me to read out, please do feel free to pop it over via email. Finally, our Patreon and merch pages are linked in the show notes as usual. Thank you so much for listening and I'm sorry that my voice doesn't sound 100% normal. As you may know, I lost my voice a couple of weeks ago and when I talk a lot, it's still a little bit ropey. But hopefully by next time, it will be 100% fine. A big thank you for all your ratings and reviews. If you've enjoyed the show and would like to leave one wherever you listen, it would be hugely appreciated as always. Thanks again to Casey for letting me know about this story. It was absolutely fascinating. I hope you all have a great week and I will speak to you again next Wednesday in Weird Fix. So until next time, take care of yourself and others and keep it weird, but the good kind of weird. Weird.